Hi, this is John from Prodigal Church. We want to thank you for listening to this week's teaching. The best way to watch and listen is through our Prodigal mobile app, available at your app store. We hope you are moved to love God and others in a greater way. Now, let's dive right into this week's teaching. Christianese, that is a language that uh, we speak in the church all too often. Um, And this morning we are going to learn to unspeak Christianese. 20 years ago, I was in Mozambique, Africa. I was a part of a discipleship training school or a DTS. And the, for the first three months of our DTS, we learned a ton. Uh, we learned about community development, leadership, um, the Bible. And the second three months was spent kind of applying what we had learned at our DTS. And so we were at a church in a small village in Mozambique. And in Mozambique, they speak Portuguese, which is very similar to Spanish. And I was asked to share at this church um, what I had been learning. And so, of course, not speaking Portuguese, I used a translator uh, or an interpreter. And so I began sharing all about our DTS, our discipleship training school, how great our DTS was and has been, and how much we've wanted to share it with others. And uh, almost immediately, I can see that the people in the church are getting very uncomfortable. And so I want to make sure that I'm not saying anything offensive. And so I look at my DTS leaders and they kind of give me the thumbs up and and to keep going. And so I started to maybe get a little more passionate about our DTS and what God had done through it. And the more I spoke and the louder I spoke, the more every Mozambican became more uncomfortable. Until finally, one of the missionaries we were working with stood up and began laughing. He said, excuse me, John, uh, but I see what's going on here. And he looked at me and all the people of the church and he said, you are saying DTS, but it is being translated as STD. You are saying discipleship training school, it is being uh, translated as sexually transmitted disease. And so then I began to replay all the things that I had said prior to, right? I said, I am here to share about my STD. All that I've experienced with this STD, I now want to share with you. We all want to share it with you. Now, because we were part of different cultures, our wires got crossed and things got lost in translation. And so I was saying one thing, but I was also saying something else. And the same is true for Christians who speak Christianese. Speaking in terms that we'd only use with other believers in church. Uh, When we speak this language, often we don't even know what we're saying. And if we're not sure what we're saying, then certainly other people who are non-Christians have no idea. The Urban Dictionary, a popular user-driven website that defines slang, says that Christianese is the language spoken by Christians. It makes no sense to anyone unfamiliar with the biblical text, but it earns you major points in the eyes of other Christians. Now, this outsider perspective stings because it's partially true. Uh, Speaking Christianese from a stage is a quick way to signal to all of your first-time guests, you are an outsider here and you do not fit in. Why do we do this? Why do we use churchy language? Why do we speak Christianese to a culture that is hearing something else? There is this story in Acts chapter 17 about the Apostle Paul going to Athens in Greece. And Athens at one point was the intellectual capital of the world. 
philosophers would gather to discuss all the different ideas and religions and philosophies of the day. This was the Harvard or the MIT or the Princeton, the Cambridge and Oxford, right? Uh, this is the elite. And Paul's walking through the city of Athens, and he's not just walking mindlessly. He's walking mindfully, observing. He is walking through the city, and he is learning, he is praying, he's being sensitive to the Spirit. And some of the philosophers wanted to debate Paul and, and hear about this new teaching that he had been proclaiming. And so at, Ma at Mars Hill, at the Areopagus, the place of debate, the place of discussion in Athens, Paul begins to share about Jesus. And he begins with his walk to the city, and he says, People of Athens, I see that you are very religious. And as I walked around, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. This very God that is unknown to you, I will make known. This God doesn't live in a temple made by human hands. He is the creator of everything, and he's in charge. God did this so that people would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. This is a beautiful sermon. And some wanted to hear more. Some became followers of Jesus because of what Paul had said. And, and there are several things here that are easy to miss in this story. So at the time, in, this day, in these days, there was a school of thought called the Academy. And the Academy was, uh, began with Plato. Okay? Not the children's toy, but the philosopher. And according to the Academy... There simply isn't enough strong evidence for us to be able to tell whether the gods exist or not. And if they do, what, if anything, do they want from us as humans? And the, in the academy, it can produce two postures of thinking, okay? One, a couldn't care less attitude, or two, a kind of humility and openness to something new. And there's all the difference in the world between someone who says, I know that we'll never know much about the God, so I'm just going to offer lambs once a year and go on living my life. And someone who says, I can't help but believing that there must be somewhere, some divine being who is actually more than we could ever dream of. So I'm keeping the windows of my heart open, hoping to find out one day. The first we could call a closed agnostic. We don't know. We can't know. I like it that way. The second we can call an open agnostic. We don't seem to know at the present, but that means it's quite possible, maybe even likely, that there is something more out there. Here's what I'm trying to say. Notice that Paul chooses to see whoever built the altar to an unknown God as an open agnostic. He chooses to see what's best in them. See, he had two choices. Uh, to see the worst in the Athenians or to see the best. And Paul chose to see the best. He doesn't think these closed-minded, big-city Athenians, these academics, these terrible sinners, they just need a preacher to slap them upside the head and tell it like it is. No. Paul doesn't see this altar as an abomination or of ignorance. He sees it as a window which might let in some light. He doesn't see it as an altar of abomination. He sees it as a window where light can get through. Could we too choose to see what's best in people who view things differently than we do? 
Because we too have a choice. Do we see people as ignorant sinners who simply don't care about God? Or do we see people made in the image of God that God loves and we are called to love as well? And then Paul quotes three pagan philosophers. In just two verses, he quotes three pagan, non-Jewish, non-Christian philosophers who worship the false god. He quotes them because he had read their works and he understood their works and he used their quotes appropriately when speaking to people who were also familiar with him. But these quotes, they're easy to miss. So let me read the passage again. Acts 17, 27-28. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. That last line, we are his offspring, that's Eridus, a third century BC Stoic philosopher, and he's referring to Zeus here, okay, a false god. Then, in him we live and move and have our being. That's Epimenides, an eighth century Greek mystic who was also referring to Zeus. And then, this is the one that's most often missed, but it's my favorite. Paul uses a word here that for reaching out and to find him. Or the, another translation says, to feel after him. It's the same word that the famous Greek poet Homer used in the well-known story of the Cyclops. The giant one-eyed Cyclops had captured Odysseus and his men, and Odysseus had got him drunk and then blinded him with a sharp stake right through his one eye. And then the epic's hero then wanted to sneak out of the cave where him and his men were being held, but it was difficult because the Cyclops was groping around. He was feeling after Odysseus so that he might find him and kill him. This groping around, this feeling after in the dark, that's the very word that Paul uses here. And it's brilliant. It's as if he's saying that, that in our sin we are as blind as the blinded Cyclops. Nevertheless, we should feel after God to find him, though we can't see him. So, when speaking to intellect, intelligent agnostics in the intellectual capital of the world, Paul quotes Homer, Epimenides, and Eridus, three pagan thinkers. And then he uses their words, which were, which were originally about false gods, and then says that they are true, and they're true about the one true God. They're true about Jesus. Now, Paul, in his earlier journeys, doesn't use this method to describe the gospel, to explain the gospel. It seems that when he presented the gospel to different groups of people, he used a different metaphor, different language. In Acts 13, Paul gives this enormous sermon to Jewish people and God-fearers. And he shares the gospel in a completely different way. To them, he speaks Christianese. Okay? He's speaking to religious people. He's speaking to Jewish people. So he addresses them as fellow Israelites. He tells the story of Israel uh, uh, from Egypt to Canaan, from the book of Judges to the book of Kings. He references Moses, David, and Abraham. Do you see what he's doing here? To the religious people, he spoke their language. He met them where they're at. To the irreligious agnostics, he too spoke their language and he met them where they're at. Often, as Christians, we don't do that, do we? All too often, we're using religious language when speaking to irreligious people. 
And here's where it hurts most. The problem is, we've become so religious that we don't even know how to speak or relate to people who live differently or think differently than us. Let me say that again. The problem is that we've become so religious that we don't even know how to relate or speak to people who think or live differently than us. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. Carl Barth once said, preach the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Paul later says in his letter to the Corinthians, I became all things to all men that I might save some. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world, tried to experience things from their point of view. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those into a life, a God-saved life. That's the message translation. I became all things to all men. As we finish this sermon series, for five weeks we've been looking at the book of Acts. For five weeks we've been studying uh, that we can love Jesus and not be weird. And so I want to say this very plainly. You can love Jesus and speak English instead of Christianese. You can love Jesus and not threaten people with eternal damnation every chance you get. You can, you can love Jesus, but have life-giving, amazing relationships with people who are very differently, different than you. You can love Jesus, but you don't have to be weird. One of the more influential pastors in my life tells the story of a church volleyball game. Now, I, I dislike church volleyball because I'm competitive. And church volleyball is usually 30 people on 30 people, and maybe three people know how to actually play volleyball. And then the other ones are just kind of laughing and smiling when they hit the ball. So they're playing church volleyball, and the pastor sees someone walking by, and he kind of feels this stirring from the Holy Spirit, much like Philip in Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch. He feels a stirring. And so he feels like he should invite him to play. So he does. And the guy was tall. It looked like he was a good athlete. So the pastor's team could probably use someone like that. So the guy did. He, he came over and he played volleyball. And afterwards, he thanks the pastor for the invite. And he asked, how do you guys all know each other? And the pastor said, well, we, we all go to the same church. And the man says, can I go to your church? Sure. And uh, he continued. He said, I just got out of a, a really long relationship. She got the friends and I got the dog. And I was just thinking, I need to find some friends, and then you invite me to play volleyball. The pastor goes on to say that this man didn't commit his life to Jesus for another year and a half. God can use anyone and anything. If he can use church volleyball, he can use you. He can use me. So let's go out there and love God and love people. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the, for the example we have of the early disciples in the book of Acts, empowered by your spirit to go and change the world for you. Thank you for the impact that they have made even on our lives because the message went forward. And so God, help us to love you in a greater way and not be weird, just to be real, to be in love with you and to practically find ways to love others. In Jesus' name, amen. 
We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Next week, we begin a brand new sermon series called The Sermon on the Mount, and we encourage you to follow along uh, in our daily readings of The Sermon on the Mount in our Bible app in our reading plan. And so check that out, and we look forward to seeing you next Sunday. Grace and peace.